Sometimes global crises can reveal structural weaknesses and lead to long-term change. Social distancing and limiting our contacts with others will be a fact of life for a long time to come. But what exactly will be the implications of the coronavirus pandemic? Will this crisis transform our economy, our society, our democracy? Or will we return to normal almost as if nothing ever happened? The plans to reopen the country are close to being finalised. And what about us as individuals? What effect will it have on the way we live, the way we work and interact? One thing I think coronavirus crisis has already proved is that there really is such a thing as society. I'm Matthew Taylor, the Chief Executive of the RSA here in London. My organisation has been at the forefront of social change for over 260 years. And over the coming weeks, I'll be speaking to scholars, business leaders, politicians, journalists and more, and asking them one key question. How could and how should the pandemic change our world? Welcome to Bridges to the Future, Responses to COVID-19. Well, I'm delighted today to be joined by Andrew Sullivan, writer, commentator, thought leader, controversial figure in American public life for many, many years, and somebody who's been writing brilliantly about this pandemic. Andrew, just to start, I'm sitting in my little study-come-second bedroom in Clapham in South London. It's a very sunny day. Where are you, and how have things been for you during this pandemic? Well, uh, it's not been it's not been great. I'm particularly vulnerable because I have pretty bad lungs, and so from the get go, I've been wearing. I put on a mask in early February and left the gym and started to just generally social distance because I don't think I would come out of this very well, but. You know, how many months now is it? Like three months? The psychological consequences of retaining safety are obviously beginning to impinge on one's mental health and psychological well-being. I've gone through two things just paradoxically in this epidemic so far. I lost my father to a freak accident and put down my dog yesterday. Oh, I'm so sorry, Andrew. You know, these things happen. It's life. But the inability... To be at my father's burial and our inability to, to hold any kind of memorial service means that there's not really closure for me. And although, you know, I accept that that has happened, but it's hard to grapple with completely on your own. Now, I'm, I'm in touch with my family a lot, and they're wonderful, and I love them all. And, but then also with my dog, you know, it's a silly thing, but you get very attached to your dog. You would like there to be someone else in the room with you when you euthanize a dog. And that was not available to me and not available even in the hours after. You go home alone and all you want really is a hug, to be honest with you. And if you're living alone and in this era, there are no hugs. There are no hugs anywhere. 
there are no hugs in the foreseeable future. And that's rough. Human beings have a very hard time living utterly isolated from other human beings. It's just completely against our nature. And yet that is what we're all being called to do. And my issue with that is simply that I don't see how this is going to end. I don't see how anybody with any kind of pre-existing condition should emerge at all without risking getting sick. And I also don't see, to be honest with you, either an effective treatment on the horizon or a vaccine that will really last longer than a few months. And even that is probably months away. Maybe remdesivir, the promising Gilead drug, will come through. And if you could reduce the intensity of the impact of the virus on the body, if you could just tamiflu it, as it were, that would help a lot. Once you switch the dynamic from possible death to possible lung, heart, kidney damage, but living, then I think the risk equation subtly changes a little bit. But that's my hope. That's the only hope you have. But I lived through, you know, I lived through the AIDS crisis. I lost so many friends in that period and thought I was going to die too. And I just remember waiting, waiting, waiting for a possible treatment or vaccine. We still don't have a vaccine at all. It's very hard to develop a vaccine for a retrovirus, which is why when I hear everybody enthusiastic about a vaccine, I'm just a little suspicious that one can really work on this. And especially when you look at the details of coronavirus. And you would all the time get quick rumors, even studies preliminarily leaked, that there's a new drug just about to happen that's going to make it all better. And if you lived through that crisis, you just knew that almost every time that happened, within a few weeks, your hopes would be dashed. And Progress was made in tackling the effects of the virus, very much so over the years. Treatments for pneumonia, for toxoplasmosis, for cytomegalovirus, all the other weird infections people with AIDS got, but still fatal. And 600,000 people died, young people. We're not yet, thank God, talking about 600,000. But... We are going to, I'm pretty sure in this country, in the US, I, I think we'd be lucky to, to, to not break 100,000. Andrew, there's so much to talk about there. But let me just start before we get into the conversation. I'm going to ask you the question that we ask everybody on this podcast. Andrew Sullivan, how do you think the world could and how do you think the world should change in response to this pandemic? For me, what it's done, it's paused everything. We're in Suspension, and when we're in suspension, we can look around us, perhaps a little bit more accurately because we're not in the middle of it. We get a little perspective on it right now because we're at rest in a way. And I think when you look at this, you see fundamentally that we as humans have such hubris about our control of nature, about our ability to master the environment and the global ecology. The truth is, we are not in control of this planet. We can only, at this point, let it have its way with us, as we have in the past. And I think, for me, the main understanding that comes from that is that we are not in the control of the environment more generally, that the great truth of 
my particular generation is that from the beginning of my life to this point, I've seen the earth be assaulted and thrown into disequilibrium by the effects of carbon reaching extraordinarily high levels, which is causing the sixth great mass extinction. I'm a conservative, always been a conservative, but I've always understood protection and conservation of our environment as an obviously conservative idea. I wrote back in 1985 for Margaret Thatcher's policy unit, a paper called Greening the Tories, which was really about why the most natural party for protection of the environment is the Conservative Party. And Thatcher ignored it, of course, but Cameron came back to it, and I think it's there. I think that this plague should make us look at what we have done to the environment and increase the sense of urgency that we must change our fundamental way of life towards a much more modest and livable mastery of the world giving it space to breathe. I'm really interested in how that happens. So at the RSA, we developed a kind of way of trying to understand why crisis leads to change. And I suspect you may think, not unreasonably, that it's a bit schematic. But nevertheless, we would argue that the crisis is most likely to lead to change when three conditions apply. When there is a prior a kind of latent capacity and desire for change, then during the crisis, that desire is reinforced, but also new practices, new assumptions are prefigured. And then critically, emerging out of the crisis, there are the political coalitions, the policy ideas, the social innovations ready to take advantage of that relatively small period of time when people's minds are open to change. Do you think that holds any water? And when I say this, I don't want to downplay the unbelievable tragedy of the AIDS epidemic. But in a sense, when we finally did start to emerge from it, we emerged with a positive trajectory, not only that behaviour had changed, that treatment had been developed, but also that we were on the road to liberation for the gay and lesbian community. Do you think that there are, as it were, latent capacities for change that this crisis could release? Yes. Ironically, I think how we faced and lived through AIDS, and for many of us, the actual tragedy of it kind of forced us to make sure something like that never happened again. And by that, I don't just mean the disease, I mean the fact that rather like in this epidemic, loved ones, partners were kept from hospital rooms, from funerals, were thrown out of their apartments, were subjected to unbelievable indignities. And having seen that, many of us determined to make that never happen again through legal protections of our relationships in marriage. And also, I think the gay world itself, the gay male world primarily, but also lesbian to some extent, just realized that they had to grow up. We couldn't separate ourselves from the rest of the world. We had to integrate. We had to find a way to get them to help us. Now, I'm thinking about this epidemic and seeing how something like that could possibly emerge. And I do think that the quiet that we now experience and the natural recovery that we're seeing when humans have stopped their frenetic economic activity is an insight into a world in which humans do not destroy the environment, but can live with it and protect it. And in that sense, we've just got a glimpse right now of a world with less carbon. And it's quite beautiful. 
We've also got a glimpse of the world without the noise of our urban distraction life, which is also spiritually, I think, a great opportunity for people to ingest that and adjust their lives that way. We could move away from what Pope Francis calls the throwaway culture into a culture of understanding certainly the value of human contact, because it's only when you take something away, you realize how much you need it. The importance of strong human relationships through your life, friendships, marriages, partnerships, all of those things are so important and maybe more important than the accumulation of an intensifying amount of things. So I think there is a moral and spiritual reckoning through this, which applies to our entire planet, that has to come from a shift in consciousness that might be precipitated by what we're going through. I'm working on an essay about plagues in general. And when you look back at all of the previous plagues and you ask yourself, what did they do? What was the real impact of them? And you see a variety of changes. The Black Death removed maybe up to 40% of the English population. It's kind of amazing. But it also, by decreasing the population, made labor more valuable. By revealing the failure of the church to really provide comfort and support, paved the way for the Reformation. It led to higher wages for ordinary labors. It led to a fraying of feudalism and aristocratic control of a society. But then when you look at something like the Justinian plague in the 7th century, you really see it in terms of its unraveling, final unraveling of the Roman Empire. And plague was, I think, an extraordinarily important part in the collapse of Rome. And part of what I see right now is the collapse of the American Republic and the collapse of American leadership and the unraveling of the American experiment. And that could have extraordinary impact on the world. And to watch this indispensable nation be incapable of even producing a test for coronavirus. We spend like $7 billion a year on the Center for Disease Control. It can't control disease. And we've elected a president who is a blithering, deranged narcissist who cannot even begin to actually govern in this period. So I also think it could be the unraveling of the West. It's fascinating that you're looking at history because obviously one of the things that looking at history always reminds us is that history is always this combination of structure and contingency. I lived through as an observer, but I remember even as a heterosexual man being frightened because I remember the kind of intensity of the kind of fear around AIDS. So I lived through that time and it feels to me looking back on it that it could have gone another way, that that in those early stages, homophobia was still rife. The gay community probably initially retreated, hid away. And then the actions of certain people, the courage of certain figures, people who were willing to demonstrate on the street, even though they were themselves incredibly ill, some public leaders who made the decision, which was, well, you know, we can say this disease is just about certain groups and we can stigmatize them, or we can put the health of the population first and say, actually, it isn't just certain groups. It's actually to do with behaviors and we all need to look after ourselves. So there were certain moments when certain decisions were made, people organized, things changed. Do you have a sense of what are the kind of contingent factors in this crisis of which way we emerge? Well, Sometimes it's a function of leadership, political leadership, 
but I don't see any right now, particularly. I mean, people are grappling with this, but this is a long struggle, you know, and it's much more difficult because it's something we can't really control. We can just manage. And yes, I do. I do think in some ways it was miraculous that gay men in particular did not internalize the sense that they were responsible for their own deaths. That all the guilt that we felt, because we've been brought up in it, of having any kind of sex life at all, could have crushed us. It was almost biblical in its selection of its targets, but we didn't somehow. I think there is an experience of human compassion that overwhelmed the fear. And the compassion came from looking at young, young men dying horrible deaths in great numbers, which became impossible then to deny the humanity of homosexuals. And so we saw it clearly. Now, what are we seeing clearly now? One thing I think we do see clearly now is how we have relegated the old to loneliness and isolation that we're all currently feeling, but that their isolation is particularly intense and they're stressed because they're such a higher risk than other age groups might lead us to understand that, that human beings after a certain age aren't just disposable or can be put away somewhere and forgotten. But yes, I also think that there are passions that arise out of this. You begin to see it in the United States over the question of lockdowns. You could have civil unrest. If this continues indefinitely and we enter a great depression and we can't even get out of a depression because we can't actually create an economy without threatening the entire population, then without really good leadership, you could disintegrate as a society. And the truth is that in previous plagues, society did disintegrate to a great extent. It's also this particular one is different than all the others. At no point in any of the other plagues, including even the 1918 flu, did the entire world shut itself down and lock down and then waited. What happened in the past was that people died en masse and we took some precautions, but we never did this. So governments have assumed this power and they will be answerable for it. And if it doesn't succeed, in other words, if the illness continues and if the economic decline deepens, then you're going to have a lot of desperate people and angry people. And the mental and psychological effects of sitting this out for this long, if it becomes apparent, say in the medium term, that this is not going to end, I think people are going to respond and could well respond very poorly, angrily, irrationally, especially in this country. Look, people down on Boris Johnson, I know, and, and he hasn't exactly covered himself in glory. But Britain still has a sense of solidarity in a way that America has lost. And it's clear it also has some rationality at the top that's trying to figure this out. In this country, in the United States, we have a lunatic in charge. And we have a profoundly polarized society that is dug in. The last time American society was this polarized and this bitter was in the 1860s. And I just think if you add that populism, anger, with a Great Depression bigger than the 1930s, plus continuing carnage of this kind, I just think so much could go wrong. So much damage could be done. 
We come back to politics, don't we, I think, Andrew, because think of another crisis, which looks now much smaller, although it didn't feel small at the time, which is the global financial crisis. Now, you and I are on opposite sides of the kind of centre of the political spectrum. But my view of why the opportunities of the global financial crisis were not taken to reset things, to address some of the excesses of that time, and we moved into this kind of direction of politics we've seen, is that the progressive wing was fatally split at that stage between an idealistic revolutionary kind of movement of the 1% and Occupy, who had a lot of passion, but not much in terms of a practical agenda. And then on the other hand, social democratic parties that were often exhausted, trying to kind of take the rough edges off things, but lacking a kind of capacity to speak to people and how they felt. You're somebody who's crossed different political groupings all your life. That's one of the reasons you've been such a fascinating figure, so difficult to pigeonhole. Do you think there is any kind of political alliance that breaks out of some of the tram lines that were in that polarisation? And what would it be around? Well, it's quite clear to me that when you look at how, for example, the federal government has borrowed simply huge amounts of money, that the kind of recovery stimulus efforts are already much greater than they were in 2008 and 2009. There is broad consensus for massive government intervention, for flooding the economy with money. And there seems to be absolutely no constraints on that right now. The United States now has a debt level, the equivalent of the debt it had after World War II. It's unprecedented. But people are assuming it's no big deal because of interest rates being so low and inflation being so subdued. So in some ways, we've already had a paradigm shift. We're all Keynesians now. And we're Keynesians because the alternative would be catastrophic. So I think that's happened. And I think that will be reinforced. And I think, for example, the conservative shift in Britain to huge investment in public services, or at least much bigger investment in public services, and a tolerance of higher debt has already shifted the economic argument here. So that has happened. I think also the role of public health and the importance of public health has also really sunk in in a way that I don't think you'll have much opposition to really funding the NHS or indeed helping expand health access in this country, could be a a fundamental shift away from neoliberalism. I think it's happened, actually, but I think it will become clearer in the wake of the epidemic. But I also think this, if you present people with a revolution in a period of extreme instability and insecurity, you may well be rejected. What people want in this situation is some sense of security some sense of safety, some stability. And the tragedy is, of course, all this money has been spent and borrowed just to keep us where we are, just to prevent a cataclysm economically. So there are limits to this too. I remember, I mean, I was close to the Obama administration during the 08 crisis. And look, all I can tell you is from the inside, the people I was talking to and seeing was just a very simple response, which is how do we stop all this completely destroying the world economy? That was our first priority, which meant even though they hated it, they had to defend the banks. It was a kind of blackmail just to get stability back. So what I'm saying is that emergencies like this are not actually very 
fruitful for real radicalism unless the whole system unravels and then it becomes less risky to do that. So I'm not sure it's going to happen right away. I think some of it has already happened. But I don't think revolutions are really where people are at right now. I think they want rationality and calm and stability. And they want some hope. I remind you that during this epidemic and during a period of absolute resurgence of the left, the Democrats have picked the most old, white, moderate they could find. And for that matter, my old friend Keir Sommer is definitely attempting not to sound like a Corbynite revolutionary. So I think we have to be a little circumspect about the possibility of a radical reorientation of the politics of either country. I tend to agree. And I think that one of the things we have to observe carefully is actually change at a lower level. So what I'm fascinated by is change in the institutions, that we're seeing institutions innovate. We're seeing organizations that might have competed starting to collaborate. We're seeing within organizations, silos breaking down, people having to be granted autonomy to be able to find solutions. Partly this is it's innovations like doctors, for example, finally doing consultations and providing prescriptions online. But it's also to do with the things you can do when you don't have to do all that bullshit anymore, when you know the bureaucracy is taken away, no one's measuring the KPIs anymore, the internal market doesn't apply. And what we're seeing is almost as much is being created by the fact that you don't have to do all that crap that you used to do. Now, Of course, when we come out of the crisis, the regulations will apply again and the competition will apply again. But I think there is something to be learned from how institutions are behaving in the crisis. Yes. And I think the telemedicine and the fact that we're so reliant now on online communication, I'm going to be very curious how that affects universities and colleges. I think very curious about how it's going to affect business when they discover you can do much more than you thought you could do without any actual central office or without any congregation like that and why meetings there's no reason they have to be really in person so we may see a real virtualization as it were of a lot of interactions but i'm not sure that's a great thing for human beings in fact i wonder if it's a really bad thing that by removing all the social granular interactions and making our lives far more efficient in a way but far lonelier i think is not actually very healthy for humans as a social animal. But it may happen. It may have to happen. But I don't think it can be permanent because people can't live that way. We just can't. We need each other. My friend Johan Hari wrote this beautiful book called Lost Connections in which he rightly identified that depression is really correlated by your ability to be with others and be in contact with others and to feel their love and their touch and their voices and their faces and their bodies. This is a crucial element for human flourishing. And if this is removed from us, this could all get worse in this crisis. Andrew, I could talk to you for hours and anyone who's enjoyed listening to what you've said, challenging a lot of it is, I would strongly recommend that they look up some of the things that you've been writing and will no doubt continue to write. I hope this isn't an inappropriate final question, Andrew, but we've asked it of all our guests. And, you know, you've suffered a double bereavement and it's obviously been tough for you. But nevertheless, one of the things that's happened in this crisis is that people have discovered new 
habits or pleasures or whatever. My father's learning Italian. I spoke to the former Australian Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd, who's trying to reread the original works of Chinese Marxism in their Chinese original form. Lots of people are making bread. Has there been anything that you've been able in the time you've had to focus on or do that's been different? Well, the thing with me is that I work, have worked from home now for 20 years. And my work actually right now is as intense as ever, if not more intense as a writer, as a journalist. So all my reading and spare time has been involved in reading the history of plagues and epidemics. It's a vast literature that I'm trying to absorb and master. So in fact, I don't have all those hours that other people might have at this point. So I haven't had to fill that void in a way. I'm incredibly upset with not being able to go to the gym. I know that sounds weird, but physical exercise for me was so important. And so I'm now, the one thing I'm doing is I'm learning yoga via online classes and taking time each day. And I'm also re-upping and I, I used to be a much more regular meditator. And it's kind of disappeared over the last year or so. And I'm trying to reinsert that back into my life. The other thing that I'm trying to replace is the sacraments of the church and the ability to be at mass with my fellow believers and to access sacraments that to me are essential to life and flourishing. And that has been extraordinary. I don't know what the consequences of this will be for organized religion. We've never suspended the practice of religion the way we have in this epidemic before. And I wonder what that'll do, whether it will encourage a more intense personal spirituality because we need to do something, or whether it will lead to just greater disorientation. But the truth is I have done nothing but add yoga <laughs> because I've never worked so hard in my life. And, there's, and I'm lucky enough, very lucky enough, to be still permanently employed and also lucky enough to feel that my work can help some people or can be constructive in a way that sometimes writing about politics and culture isn't. Well, Andrew, we're incredibly grateful to you for using some of that valuable time to talk to us today. Andrew Sullivan, thank you very much. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.